Um, you may ask, some people have asked me about, like, what happens when somebody comes to church who's not wearing a mask? What do we do? Do you have baseball bats that we can beat them with? And the answer is no. Um, there might be one in the gym, but don't use it for that. Um, uh, the, the way the order states it is that you are not supposed to ask somebody why they're not wearing a mask, and you're not supposed to ask somebody why they are wearing a mask. It literally explicitly says that in the order. The reason you're not supposed to ask somebody why they are wearing a mask is because it's considered racially insensitive. As to like, why are you covering up your face? What are you, like a, like a thug or something, right? You're not supposed to ask why somebody is wearing a mask in any situation. And you're not supposed to be asking why somebody isn't wearing a mask. It explicitly says that. So we're actually following the legal order by not doing so. Now here's the thing I need to say about that. Do not abuse that. Okay? Don't abuse that. Um, the fact that you don't like masks is not a sufficient reason not to follow it. If you're a believer, you should follow it to the extent to which you can. So um, there's a tension there. We're not supposed to ask people because everybody's supposed to be trustworthy with their freedom, which every believer should be. Does that make sense? So if you're not wearing one, there should be a really good reason for it. Um, that, that we would all think is a good reason, not just um, you not liking it. Okay, great. I think that's it, right? Sweet. Am I going to read the sermon? Is it a sermon now? Okay, great. All right. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open it to Nehemiah 13. We're going to read a little passage there and a little passage elsewhere. Uh, let me say something about this today. Uh, instead of writing a sermon this week, uh, I wrote a five-sermon series. And then I figured that you guys weren't going to want to stay here for two and a half hours for the sermon. Um, and we thought that the live stream might drop off by a few viewers. Um, so I'm going to just do like one sermon that's basically like an overview of the general idea of chapter 13. And then we're going to come back to this chapter next year and do a five-week series on how how a people sustains Reformation. Okay? It's going to be so, so great. But I'm not going to try to cover that all today because there's— the more I studied, the more there was, and the more there was, the more there's more that needed to be said, and then it was too much. Okay. Chapter 13, verses—I'm going to start in verse 4. Before this, Eliashib the priest had been put in charge of the storerooms of the house of our God, and he was closely associated with Tobiah. He was a notorious enemy through the first 12 chapters. And he, Eliashib, had provided Tobias with a large room formerly used to store the grain offerings and incense and temple articles, and also the tithes of grain, new wine, and oil prescribed for the Levites, musicians, gatekeepers, as well as the contributions to the priests. While all this was going on, I was not in Jerusalem. For in the 32nd year of Ataraxes, king of Babylon, I had returned to the king. That's all the way in Persia, 600-something miles away. Sometime later, I asked his permission, and I came back to Jerusalem. Here I learned the evil that Elisheep had done in providing Tobiah a room in the court of the house of God. I was greatly displeased and threw all of Tobiah's household goods out of the room. I gave orders to purify the rooms and then put them back, put back into them the equipment of the house of God with the grain offerings and incense. I also learned that the portions assigned to the Levites had not been given to them, and that all the Levites and musicians responsible for the service— had gone back to their own fields. So I rebuked the officials and asked them, why is the house of God neglected? And then I called them together and stationed them at their posts. And all of Judah brought the tithes of grain and new wine and olive oil to the storerooms. I put Shemaliah, the priest, Zadok the scribe, and a Levite named Pediah in charge of the storerooms and made Hannah, son of Zakur, the son of Mataniah, their assistant because they were considered trustworthy. They were made responsible for distributing the supplies to their fellow Levites. Remember me for this, my God, and do not blot out what I have done so—what I have so faithfully done for the house of my God and its servants and its services. Now I'm going to read for you Matthew 21, verses 10 to 17. And the crowds answered, 
This is Jesus, the prophet, prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. And Jesus entered the temple courts, and he drove all, all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, My house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. The blind and the lame came to him at the temple and were healed, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did, and the children shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Did you hear what the children are saying? They asked him. Yes, replied Jesus. Have you never read? From the lips of the children and infants, you, Lord, have called forth your praise. And he left them and went to the city of Bethany, where he spent the night. Okay. Let me not put too fine a point on this. I don't care if there are gulags for men who don't wear skinny jeans. I am never going to wear them. Okay. Um, I realize that men want women to wear tight pants. I totally understand that. And it is less hypocritical then for men also to wear tight pants, right? But you don't really cure the oppression of women by like making men do it. You're supposed to let everybody off the hook. Like women should not need a whole like toolkit for how to get their pants off, right? When they need, need to take a shower, go to bed at night, right? It's ridiculous. I mean, I, I distrust the entire fashion industry whole cloth. I mean, these are the people who brought us man buttons. You know what I'm saying? Like, this is a problem. Like, a man, but it's fine if it's a transitionary state to something longer and flowier, right? And I've been entirely defranchised by the whole fashion industry because I can't even grow a beard. So, like, there's the whole, like, man thing where you've got, like, like, three meals hidden in the thing and you don't even need a lunchbox anymore. I'm just completely disenfranchised to. It's ridiculous, right? And I don't even understand why the whole— you know how they think people call themselves now? Because all the fashions come out of cities. And now you know what the cities call themselves? Fashion forward. That's like me telling you I'm a next-level preacher. Like how—you can't get more self-congratulatory than that, right? So I was, here's what I'm thinking. There's no reason, ideologically speaking, why—I mean, fashion can be democratic. So let's just make some up right now. Why can't I be a fashion leader, right? So here's what I'm thinking, right? We'll just— Roll our pant legs up. You don't need new clothes. And think about this. It's going to be stinking freezing around here in about a month, and we'll have bare legs. It's just like, just what you'd expect from the fashion industry. I'm basically on their mental wavelength. Am I right? Boom. Here we are. Next level. Right? Now, I know like 50 people watch this online, and this is is probably going to grow like wildfire. Um, and even though Madison isn't a fashion, fashion center, it will now be the new Milan, right? <laughs> but in reality, right, we know that's not going to happen. We know that's not going to happen. Because you can, you can have an idea that you believe in, that you believe the world should be that way. You can be like, the world should be like this. Shouldn't the world be like this? And it may just be that the world isn't that way. And it's not going to be remade in the image of your ideology. Like, it turns out that people make fashion decisions for a complex ecosystem of reasons. Lots of people make lots of different decisions. It's actually pretty complicated. There's whole distribution systems for everything and blah, blah, blah. Right? And I can think whatever I want about fashion. It's not going to change it. Fashion has essentially functioned the same in human society since the first human beings and one lady put on something shiny. It's not really changeable because it's, it's fundamentally connected to the way human societies function and flow together and how people make decisions, how they feel about being better than each other and all that. 
it is hard enough to admit that we were wrong about something. Right? That's not easy. A lot of people, um, a lot of people really struggle with it, right? And by a lot of people, I mean the entire human race. To get to the point of repentance, that's what the Bible calls it, repentance, right? Uh, repentance is, is like, it's, it's jerking the wheel. It's like, we need to make a turn. We're going to make a turn. There's every once in a while I, on longer trips, um, I'll get doing something or I'll get talking to Alexi or whatever, and I, I will not listen to the GPS person telling me to, to like make a turn. And so then I'll be going the wrong way. And so the first thing that has to happen to get going the right way is you got to make a turn, right? And essentially, that's what repentance is, right? The Greek term metanoia means to change your mind, right? And repentance is like you have to make a turn generally in the opposite direction you are going. You're going to have to backtrack for a while at least, probably. Very few people ever do that. Repentance is extraordinarily difficult, okay? Even rarer than that is when people really face the facts about the truth of God and God's reality and the reality of their lives together, where a bunch of people somewhat simultaneously recognize that repentance is necessary, and they basically all need to repent in the same way. And they do, but that's called revival or renewal sometimes, right? So revival is essentially corporate repentance, where God brings new life, usually predicated on people being like, oh, we all need to make a turn. Does that make sense? Now, here's the problem. You can believe, like I believe this fashion is going to catch on, that if you embrace the romance of repentance or are part of the dynamic of revival, that because it feels authentic, that it will sustain itself. Does that make sense? It's kind of like when people fall in love and they're super disillusioned when two years later they're not in love anymore. And they're like, well, but our love was so authentic. What happened? What happened? Well, like human, like human chemistry happened. Like you don't stay like that. In fact, that's just not how relationships are, right? It's like the, you, you get infatuated. That's supposed to lead to bonding. Bonding leads to the development of a relationship. A developed relationship is love, right? The storm of emotions you felt in the infatuation stage was meant to—it was like the seed that was supposed to grow into love, but because you didn't use it for that, it miscarried, didn't become the plant that is love. It doesn't produce a fruit. Now that is— Lifelong happiness. And that's the way the world really works. But because in your mind you had this idea that like love was just going to perpetually be a constant state of infatuation the rest of your life, like not only would like your adrenal gland stop working and like your, like your body's chemistry literally break down and everybody would starve because everybody would be constantly being in love and not going to work and making food and stuff. But we'd all have incredibly shallow relationships. People who are infatuated with each other tend to have extremely shallow relationships. It just feels like they're deep and meaningful. Right? The world just isn't like that. What has to happen is something has to happen in repentance and revival that starts a process of continual reformation. If you know your church history and you, you know the, the days of the Reformation in the 1500s, um, there was this saying that the Reformers came up with because the Catholic Church had gone through a period of, of like, getting more crusty, right? It, just does, it got problems. Those problems got more stuck. Those things got even more stuck. People started, like, making careers on them. And you got what, um, what social scientists called organizational sclerosis. Like, things just get hardened, and it's hard to change them. And so everything had to be kind of blown up, right? And, um, but then they said, listen, just because we have reformed this— we're going to be just as bad in 20 minutes. 
Don't you understand? Like, and so they came up with this phrase, reformed and always reforming. Reformed and always reforming, right? Now, if you naturally have a continual um, improvement um, personality, then you're like, that's right, right? But most people don't. Most people don't. Most people wish they could just be left alone, right? But the problem is, is that you can't be. Because one of the things that Christian theology essentially teaches is that the doctrine of depravity, that is, the idea that we have a—that sin has corrupted our good nature, and we live in a condition in which we're drawn to what the Bible calls the flesh, which is to be drawn to that which is opposed to God, which is predominantly selfish, which seeks idols to provide for us what we need, and which is inherently self-destructive of the good of creation and the rejection of what we're created for. Right? The Bible calls that depravity. We're broken, twisted, we're bent on the inside, right? It's a problem. Because that that is part of our condition right now, right, under the curse, there is a natural breaking down of the ordering of whatever good God is doing in our lives, and whatever God is doing among us, and whatever God is doing through us, right? There's an entropy. It's like we're losing heat. We're breaking down. We're getting more disordered. That's what happens. So you, you can have this—you can have an incredible moment of repentance. So for some of you, this has happened. Like, you're kind of like, yeah, Nick, I, like, I went to this camp, or I went to this retreat, or I had this moment, or I had this prayer time with God, and it was like, I realized he was calling me back, and I was like, oh my gosh, God, yes, 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 right? And it was like, it felt 100% authentic, Nick. But like, listen, honestly, like, the next week, I felt like I was right back where I was, right? Sometimes it's like the next minute. You're like, oh, I gotta get off these screens and pay attention to more important things. God, and you like have this moment where you're like, and then you're like, I wonder what's on my, my Instagram right now. Like it's, it, compulsions can bring you back really fast, right? Addictions and compulsions, you're like, I'm not gonna do that anymore. Well, let's get, let's get through the first five minutes first, right? However, what scripture teaches is that the, the Spirit of God, who is called in many places in scripture the Spirit of Christ, is a, Right? Because you can ask this question. If things tend to break down, why doesn't that happen to, like, biological life forms, like human beings? Like, they—at least when they're born, they grow and develop, right? They don't immediately start dying. It takes a little while, right? And the answer is because, because you're putting all this energy into the system, right? They get—like, they're in the sun, and they're eating food, and they're—like, they're, they're, they're generating energy because they're taking something in. So their system isn't breaking down because they're rejuvenating it. This, the Holy Spirit— is present with us to rejuvenate, to strengthen, to grow, to develop us, right? But this only works when applied, right? The moment of repentance, like the early part of a romantic relationship, is a moment where you're deciding not just to turn around, but to give yourself to the process of recognizing that de depravity is going to immediately start to create entropy in the decision you just made. And only the message of Christ— and the Spirit of Christ can help you proceed through the reforming process and develop and change and grow. Otherwise, it's all going to break down. Does that make sense? If you believe that you can just make a decision, especially in relation to something that's been bad for a while, right? You see this like in marriage counseling where people have had trouble for like 10 years in their marriage or 20 years in their marriage. And they're like, yeah, we've had the same argument for like 20 years. And, and they're like, well, here's the problem. They go, that is the problem. They're like, we're going to stop doing that. The pastor's always sitting there being like, yeah, we'll see. You know, <laughs> even if their repentance is really genuine, because what everybody knows is like, yeah, it's great for you to acknowledge that, 
But if that's what you always slide back into, if you don't engage the presence of the Spirit to really change in a really disciplined, vigilant kind of way, depravity is going to slide you back into what you were doing, and you're just going to do what you were doing again. And it happens kind of fast, right? You can see this in, um, in this passage of, of Nehemiah. Nehemiah leaves for about 12 years. So he's led this group of people through this incredible reformation. Right? They've come, they've built, they've, and they've done a lot in the right direction. They built the uh, wall, they've repopulated the city, they've, like, they have reconstituted the temple, they have done all these sorts of things, right? And the book ends with huge nationwide revival repentance. Everybody repents personally, and everybody repents together. They have repentance, they have revival, right? And then they all agree what they, that what they repented about, and then they make a covenant agreement about what they're going to do. And then Nehemiah puts everybody in their slot, so they can start doing it, right? And then there's basically just this break of 12 years. You know, I has to go back to Persia. So the key leader guy leaves. And what happens over 12 years? Well, like a, everything bad, right? I'll get to that in just a second. But one of the things that this shows is, is that without a vigilant, energetic, authoritative reform, you can't make repentance permanent. Just like with all the practices of getting to know each other and commit to somebody and building a home together, without all of those things, you can't make the infatuation of love last forever. If you look at the passage closely, um, we'll come back to this as a series. It'll be these five sermons. Um, You can see this as you work your way through the passage, right? In the first three verses, it's purity, right? Um, God made a, a number of laws about worship And some of those laws said that certain people couldn't be inside the temple courts in the sacrificial area. There were certain rules of purity. So people who were physically deformed couldn't be inside. People who um, uh, were—in a number of different situations, but specifically people from non-Jewish nationalities couldn't be in the inner temple courts. They could be in the outer temple courts. They could become Jews. They—like, there were a number of things that could happen to them. But they, but they couldn't be in there because of certain rules that God was demonstrating for purity. One of the reasons for that is God wanted people to understand throughout the whole world, and us to understand now, if we are a foreigner to Christ, we have no part in his atonement. Does that make sense? The New Testament principle that was displayed in the Old Testament function of worship was that if you remain a foreigner to God, you don't get his atoning work on your behalf. Therefore, you're not forgiven and you don't have peace with God. You're still under his wrath and you're still an outsider. Within the Torah itself, you could become a Jew. But like in many cases in the ancient world, as in today, people want to be part of something without becoming the thing. And in Israel, there was a very specific thing that had to be done in order for you to to leave your national identity behind and become a Jew. It was circumcision, and it was not done lightly. Especially among adult men, right? So most people wanted to be part of Judah, but not go through that process and not become a Jew. And so, but the purity law said, look, those people can't come in the sacrificial area, they can't be in what's called the assembly of the Lord, if you look at Deuteronomy 23, right? And so the people are like, oh shoot, we're not supposed to do this. And so they like had to reaffirm that purity because they, they'd lost a sense of what purity looks like, right? And without purity, unity becomes shallow and corrupt, right? The second thing is leadership, right? Eliashib had intermarried with the family of, of Judah's worst enemy, and he'd made like a, like a, a mother-in-law suite literally in the storehouses of the temple where this guy who wasn't a Jew wasn't even allowed. Right? It was an incredible corruption leadership of him taking that which had been put and trusted to him, 
and he used it for his own personal benefit in a way that God explicitly commanded him not to do, right? Which will undermine the work that he was supposed to do as a leader. It's a complete destruction of leadership, and nobody stopped him. Everybody just stared like a cow staring at a closed gate, like, I don't know what to do here, right? Part of the reason that happened was because stewardship had broken down, right? So in, in any organization or any group of people that, that are revived, there's somebody doing work that's repetitive that nobody pays any attention to, right? It's stereotypical to say a lot of mothers do this in households. There's all these things that she does constantly every day that nobody pays any attention to, and without it, the whole house would fall apart. You know, kids don't pay attention to who's earning the income or who's cleaning stuff or who's fixing gas or like who's doing all that stuff, right? And so they just, they just live in a place that isn't falling apart and they don't really know why, but it's because there's, a, there's somebody who's a steward, right? And in Israel, it was the Levites, this group of people called the Levites, and they were in charge of all the upkeep and maintenance of everything, making sure the tithes came in the temple, making sure the gates were, were overseen properly, making sure worship was done well, making sure there was enough wood and enough lambs and all these other things to make sure that Israel was focused on the temple of its God and therefore worshiping its God and therefore formed by its God. There's all these people doing that work. In a church like this, would be like all of our small group leaders, all of our elders, all of our deacons. There's this whole subculture of people who are doing all this stuff that people who aren't doing it don't even really know people are doing sometimes or don't pay any attention to it, but they wouldn't be living in a spiritually vibrant community if those people weren't doing it. And the reason they, they weren't doing it is because um, in order for it to be done, somebody had to farm on behalf of these people, and nobody was. And so they had to go back to their fields to raise crops because otherwise they were to starve. So they stopped doing their stewardship, which made it much easier for Eliashib to engage in corruption because no, nobody's overseeing him. There's no tithes coming in to be stored in the temple. What do you need the tithe storage room for? Well, we'll just set it up for my father-in-law, right? The, for, the fourth thing is worship. And the main focus in chapter 13, if you read it, you'll see, is about the Sabbath day, right? That in order for us to develop as believers, there have to be places in our life where the worship of God, where the sacred paying attention to Him overcomes everything else. Everything else stops. All of our other felt needs, all the other things we think that we should do. Like, and, and, and Sabbath was a great example of that because you stopped your economic gains. You don't work. You don't sell anything. You don't make anything. You don't build anything. You don't make anybody else work. It actually explicitly says, not only were they working the wine presses, but they were putting stuff on their donkeys. And you're like, oh, that sounds really bad, putting stuff on your donkeys. But it actually explicitly says in the Old Testament that on the Sabbath, animals rest too. They rest too, right? They were disobeying it all the way from top to bottom. And what it showed was God wasn't first. And when worship isn't right, nothing else is right. Right? And then the last thing is discipleship. And the main way that played out—this um, will be a very controversial sermon when I preach it in the future—is um, in inter, interreligious marriage. Uh, the people of Judah were marrying people who were not part of the nation of Judah. And you're like, well, isn't that good? Isn't God like for interracial marriages? And the answer is, yeah. There's nothing wrong with interracial or interlinguistic or intercultural marriages. They're more difficult, and you shouldn't go into them like blithely. If you marry somebody of a different culture than you, it's going to be difficult right? It can be very enriching too. But it's—listen, I'm the product of an intercultural marriage, not an interracial marriage, but my mom was like old-school Italian, like from the old country, from poverty, and my dad was like a German Brit from like—all all the men on my dad's side were all Cornell men. They're all Ivy League men, and my dad and my mom got married, and it was the weirdest thing, okay? And they were both white, which is kind of the funniness of whiteness, right? There, there's like 60 cultures in whiteness, right? The idea that they're all the same is silly. 
And so I grew up in this culture that was really weird. I'd go to my, my grandparents on my dad's side, and it was just like a, it was like a different world than going to see my cousins on my mom's side, right? And, but that's not what God objects to. Look, if you want to take that on for love's sake, that's great. That's actually a good, it's a good thing. There's nothing wrong with that. It's hard. And so you'll be sanctified more. It'll be fantastic, right? <laughs> what was wrong with this was that they were marrying people outside of the Jewish faith. Right? Because remember, in Judah, religion was national by definition, right? And so when they married somebody outside of the Jewish faith, what was happening is it naturally dilutes culture. Listen, I didn't grow up Italian. My mom's 100% from Rome Italian, and I didn't grow up Italian. I don't speak a word of Italian except for chow. I know how to kiss people on both sides of their face. That's about it, right? Because when you, when you engage in a multicultural marriage, you lose most of your ethnic identity in that marriage to your next children, unless you do a ton of work to support it. And almost nobody does. People lectured my mom for years about teaching me Italian. They're like, you should teach Nick Italian. You should teach Nick Italian. You should, and like, that would have been great for getting girls at a certain point in my life, which would be obsolete now. But she, like, she just never did it because she was busy living life. Now, um, imagine then if your Italian culture, whatever that culture is, was actually the means of salvation for all of mankind, and your ethnic minority was responsible to carry that for humanity until the final revelation of the Christ— and its universalization through a thing that God would call the church that you didn't even understand yet. It literally says in the book of Nehemiah that on, the, on behalf of these marriages, most of the kids couldn't even speak Hebrew. They didn't speak the, even the language of the people of God. They spoke Ashdodi or Ammonite or whatever. They were completely losing their cultural identity and in so doing, completely losing their religious identity. It was destroying the people of God. I'll preach a whole sermon on that, but, but here's the point. The, the point is, is that all five of these things functionally have to be operative in any person's life that is going to get from repentance to reformation and transformation and formation, and in every group's life that's going to go from revival to reformation and formation and transformation. If we want anything good that God is doing to last more than the emotional froth of the minute we experience repentance or revival, these things have to be operative. They have to happen. They have to go. They have to be Vigilant, energetic, authoritative, continual reforms that are part of our lives and the structure of how we think and what we're doing. We have to move forward in the forming work of the Spirit. We're going to be falling down in the entropy of depravity. And there's, there's not a third option. The entire history of the Bible shows this, that when people are not focused actively on the Lord continually in incredibly vigilant ways and in very structured ways, they always fall into the entropy of depravity. The entire story of the Old Testament says this, and I think carefully studied the entire history of all of the world says this. And the history of the church says this. The fact that Jesus rose from the dead and the Holy Spirit lives among us does not make this less true. It's just as true now except we have slightly different resources now. I mean, in the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah was incredibly vigilant, incredibly energetic, incredibly authoritative. I mean, it says in chapter 13 that when he, he saw some of these guys that had like married foreign women, he got so angry he like pulled out the hair of their beards. Now, when, uh, when um, Ezra saw that this was a huge problem in the book of Ezra, he tore out some of his own hair in repentance. <laughs> Shows you the difference between these two men, right? He was, he was super authoritative. He did it continually, and he was a reformer. Nehemiah is one of the greatest reformers in the history of the Bible. And here's the thing. He's one of the greatest reformers in the history of the Bible, and, it, and he, didn't, he didn't fail, and he didn't win. 
Right? At the end, there's this prayer where he says, God, remember me and all that I've done for the house of my God, and don't blot it out. And I, I've heard people say, say from that, see, it's okay for you to pray, God, look at all the things I've done for you. And like, you know, I've done so much, and like, so why don't you see that and bless me and, and so on. And I don't want to say that's inherently wrong, but there's, there's two things you have to observe in that. The first is he says, he says, don't blot out what I've done. And the logic of that is he knows that God could. He knows that he, have a, he has enough fault and sin that if God chooses to pay attention to his sin ungraciously, rather than all the good things that Nehemiah did, he could rightly condemn Nehemiah like nobody's business. That Nehemiah, even though he did all this stuff, he only stands in grace anyway. But in God's grace, he did do these things. That is rare. And he did do them out of obedience and love. And he's just hoping that God will remember them on his behalf. But here's, here's what you also have to see in that verse. He says, he says it kind of because he's giving up. Like he's done all of this. And look at how they responded. Look at what they did. And look at what they're probably going to do the minute he dies. The minute he goes back to Persia. The minute he can't be the guy who literally has his foot on their neck making them do what they say they want to do. And so he's like, God, remember me. Even if they all go to hell, even if they all destroy their lives and wreck everything we've built for a lifetime, even if they do that, please at least look at me and see how much I tried. I tried so much. And yeah, they pissed it all away. But I gave the best years of my life. I gave all my wealth. I gave, I risked my life. I did everything I could to save them, to help them, to put them in a place where they could experience everything that you would give them in the energy of your spirit so that they wouldn't fall into the, to the dynamic of depravity that would drag them back down again. Right? <clears throat> so you, you could say it this way, that, um, that Nehemiah was a zealous man who tried to clear the temple of the people of God and bring them back to God. And he did all that you could ever expect a human man to do. And he was successful and he was a failure at the same time. Right? And um, it's important to recognize for us that we stand in a very similar human place and that there is a very similar one who stood like Nehemiah and did everything a person could do and in some ways looked like he failed and yet carried forward the purposes of God way greater than Nehemiah ever did, right? Jesus himself came in, and he clears the temple, and he brings healing and worship back into it. He heals the lame. The very people that you could argue were excluded under Nehemiah's day, he brings them into the place where they can worship, and he heals them, and he helps them, because he shows that even the purity of—when God brings separation even for purity's sake, he does it for the sake of everyone, and heals all, and has a way of enfranchising everybody, even within his requirements, right? To the point where even the children recognized something incredibly special was happening, and they praised God, right? And it's important to recognize also that that's not just true um, historically in the death and resurrection of Jesus, right? If you look, if you look in the book of Revelation, John, the apostle John encounters the risen Jesus, and in chapters two and following the book of Revelation, there's this section where Jesus explicitly talks to churches, not as the the dead and resurrected Christ in, the, in his historical form, but in the, his risen Lord standing over the church as their high priest, but not just their high priest, their Lord. Right? What does Lord mean? It means like undisputed ruler, king, or if you parallel that to Nehemiah, the governor. Right? He's the governor who's coming to reform his church, right? And he says, so there's, there's seven different churches. You can read what he says, all of them, but there's something he does the same for all of them. It starts this way. 
to the angel or the messenger of the church of Ephesus, right? These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands, right? And then at the end of what he says to the church, he says this. Whoever, he, whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. In every one of the letters, there's a very, something very similar that happens. He says, this is who's talking to you. This is what you've done well. Here is the thing you must turn away from. And if you do, and if you'll respond to what I'm leading, here is the great thing that's going to happen. And in every case, it says, to the one who overcomes. One of the most terrifying things about the book of Revelation for me, as a pastor, is actually not the dragons and the woman who's whisked out to the desert giving birth, or the lake of fire even. That's not the most, to me, that's not the most terrifying thing of the book of Revelation. And those things seen in their apocalyptic vision are terrifying. The most terrifying thing in the book of Revelation is that eight times Jesus says to the churches, to the one who overcomes, I will give. That's the most terrifying thing in the book of Revelation. His undisputed promise of blessing and salvation is to the one who overcomes. He will give everything necessary, right? But he also says this to us. That's terrifying, but he also says, listen to who's talking to you. The one who holds the seven stars and walks among the seven lampstands. The seven lampstands are the churches. It's a metaphor of perfection for the churches. There's seven churches that are like examples here, but the seven lampstands are all his church, and he holds the seven stars. He's entirely sovereign over everything in the heavenly realm, so to speak, right? It's obviously it's a metaphor, right? But it's an absolute metaphor. That's who's talking to us, right? You have—you don't just have a truer and better Nehemiah in Jesus' death and resurrection as a savior, and you don't just have a better high priest than Eliashib who doesn't destroy the sanctity of God, but like leads us in the worship of God for the purity of the truth and leads us to the truth incredibly. But in addition to that, you have a true and better governor, ruler, and king, a better lord than even Nehemiah was. And the one who rules undisputably over everything, he holds the seven stars, and yet he walks among us like the priest who walks among the lampstands that represent God's people. He is with you, and he holds everything in his sovereign hand. And he is calling us to recognize that the only way to overcome is to realize that repentance and revival has to get transferred into Reformation. It has to be done under the vigilant, authoritative king among a vigilant, authoritative, continually reforming people. We have to recognize that, like, whatever we want to believe about how the world should work, about how God should just do stuff, and we should be changed. What we believe—want to believe about reality that isn't real isn't going to work. You got to let it go. You have to accept God's revelation the way, the way things really are, and how he has provided for you in the way things really are, incredibly, to bring us to where we need to go. And how he's given us more than enough, if we will, and it always comes down to this, it always comes down to this, if we'll believe him if we'll trust him, if we'll have faith. It always comes back to that. Are you willing to trust and believe the Lord? Let's pray. God, as we um, take a few minutes to worship you, and 
try to have a moment right here of repentance and revival. Help us to realize what it has to lead to. Help us to get the dynamic in our minds and in our hearts really deeply. I pray if there's anything I said that's unclear, you'd bring it up in people's hearts to put in the ask me anything questions in the chat right now. I pray that you'd lead the questions this morning, Lord, and that you would have people write in stuff that, that needs to be clarified, that needs to be deepened, that needs to be helped. But I pray that we would be not just a people of repentance and not just a people of momentary revivals and good times, but a people that over 10 years, 20 years, 50 years, 100 years, 200 years, that the people known as High Point Church would be a people of continual renewal, continual reformation, people who take hold of the flow of how you grow life and order in our hearts and among us as a, as a people together. In Jesus' name.